Father, certainly this is a very important subject, how we understand what Jesus did, how Jesus um, is the Lamb of God, what that means, how uh, this is involved with our salvation. So for each person here, as we think about this and and we discuss this together, uh, help us to come closer to the reality of things. Amen. (coughs) All right, so Jesus here, the description by John the Baptist is just really interesting. Um, So last time we talked about the emphasis, the overwhelming emphasis in the Gospel of John that Jesus came to reveal the heart, mind, character of the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That's the central theme in the Gospel of John. Okay, but then we have these words here of John the Baptist. The next day, John saw Jesus coming to him and said, There is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I was talking about when I said, a man is coming after me, but he is greater than I am because he existed before I was born. I did, uh, did not know who he would be, but he came baptizing with water in order to make him known to the people of Israel. Um, but I came baptizing with water to make him known. So what does this mean? What would it understand um, to the audience in that time? And how does Jesus take away the sin of the world? Okay. see a lot of sin in our world today. Uh, when does this happen? How does this happen? <clears throat> okay, so this is the subject we'll be talking about and, and I realize how many dimensions of this that will not be covered today. So there are some unanswered questions that I think we'll need to get to when we come to the cross here at the end of John. So um, I hope I've tried not to put this in, in an offensive way, but this is how it is uh, often understood, which is this, I've sinned, which by sinning we mean I've broken God's rules. And the penalty for breaking God's rules is eternal punishment, which is, most would say, imposed by God. And many would equate equate this with God's wrath. Jesus came as the perfect Son of God and accepted this punishment, God's wrath, which was poured out on him at the cross. And if we accept what Jesus did, when God looks at us, he doesn't see us. He sees Jesus because, um, as some have said, God is too holy to look on sin. And then we receive eternal life, by which we primarily mean going to heaven. Okay? So this would be a, a common, I realize, oversimplified, maybe I should put it in more gracious wording or something, but I think that's just a common view of uh, looking at things. <clears throat> I just stumbled upon this book a a few years ago. We were on vacation and I didn't have anything to read. And so this was an interesting book about uh, this lady's experience growing up as an evangelical Christian. And this was the view that was hammered into her and uh, this caused her to react uh, in quite a negative way. So she described her experience this way. The goal of a revival was to create or revive in everybody the threefold conviction that each of us was so rotten to the core that we deserve to die and roast in hell forever, that God was enraged at us enough to kill us, and finally that in spite of everything, God loved us enough to rescue us by sending his son as a sacrifice in our place. This view of God, at least to her, consumes you with anger, renders you passive, wallows you in depression, keeps you from loving and knowing yourself to be loved. So how we describe this process I think can make God very attractive um, or for some this can can repel people away from God. So we want to try to say this as best as we can. 
So, of course, there are different ways of understanding the atonement. And probably the dominant view, at least in our Western culture today, is the penal substitutionary view of atonement. Okay? And so I just want to, I hope, respectfully uh, bring up some questions and then we can try to get to the meat of uh, this verse. Okay? So here's some things that come to mind for me. Um, could God only forgive our sin through violence? Um, pouring out his, which you know, equates with pouring out his wrath on Jesus. Uh, we forgive people and release the debt. Okay? If um, you owe me money, do I, is, is there something I need to uh, do some violence in order to, to set things right? Well, maybe that's just how it is. Okay? But this is just a question. Um, paganism, as uh, we talked about I think quite a bit last year, all the way through the Old Testament, paganism is based on appeasement. The gods are always angry, they need lots of blood, more blood the better, death of the firstborn, preferable. Okay? So that is a mark of uh, paganism. And as I read in an article about a year ago, some argued that, well, their intuition was actually correct. Now they didn't know about Jesus as the one that would satisfy God's wrath, but would we say that paganism in their intuition was um, correct? That, that does God need to be appeased? Okay, so again, our central question is, um, we want to, as best as possible, come to an understanding, a true picture of God. Um, how we describe this does affect our picture of God. Uh, I think we would all agree that however we describe it, we don't want to split the Trinity. We don't want to make one member of the Godhead more sympathetic than the other member of the Godhead. Okay, and... My feeling, you know, until, uh, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago was, was pretty much why I really like Jesus, look forward to meeting him, not so sure about the Father. Okay, and I think the Gospel of John really makes it clear we, we should feel the same about the Father as we feel about the Son. So, do we love Jesus and fear the Father? I don't think that the, the Bible encourages that at all. And in fact, nowhere in the Bible do I see the Father being appeased. And so we could ask who was changed at the cross and uh, I think that the New Testament is quite redundant that we are the ones who are changed. So all this is done by Christ who, who God who through Christ changed us from enemies into friends. So the, the Father wasn't changed into having an, an adversarial way of looking at us and now we can be friends with the Father. We were the ones who were enemies. We're changed into friends and God has given us the task of making others his friends also. Okay, that's what we want to do when we tell people about God. We want to uh, make God out to be the kind of person that you'd like to be a friend of, not someone to be afraid of. Okay, and um, with the way I described things earlier, does the Father really forgive? You know, when you forgive, don't you release the debt? If someone does something to you and you only forgive them by punishing someone else, did you really forgive the person who did something wrong? And is it true, I, I would say that this isn't, true, if we take Jesus to be God in human form, is God really too holy to view sin? Is the Father not all-knowing? A lot of things, he can't see what's going on down here on this planet um, because he can't, can't look on that. Okay, the Father knows everything. Um, so, and, and I think this is a misinterpretation of, of a verse or two in the Old Testament. If we take Jesus to be God in human form, we have God getting in the mix with sin and sinners. Um, another question is, um, is sin something, is it a commodity that we could put on a table and move it around and transfer it or hit it with a hammer? Um, is sin something that you can 
put in some quantity and punish or transfer? And is it ever just to punish the innocent for what someone else did? Okay, we would, um, I think, uh, want to go against this. You have a, a guilty person and an innocent person is punished. We let the guilty person go. Um, how does that work? And if sin, if the punishment for sin is eternal punishment, hellfire, eternal punishment, um, are we really paid up in full? Okay, Jesus was on the cross Friday night, died rather quickly, was resurrected on Sunday. If we're making a, a legal transaction out of this, uh, do we have an equal punishment? I'm not minimizing the death of Jesus, please. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about that. But, you know, if that's the punishment for sin, um, what do we do with the death of Jesus? And if the purpose of Jesus coming was to shed blood, now remember, you know, they, they, he could have been killed early on. They had, had to rescue him off to Egypt or else he would have been killed um, at a young age. We would have had blood that would have been shed. Okay, would that have been accurate, accurate uh, a payment? It, it can make the life of Jesus seem somewhat superfluous. The whole point was just the death. And again, coming back to an early question, is the atonement something done to us or in us? Okay, we, we often describe the atonement as something that was done primarily for God. Okay, and uh, I see so much of uh, the New Testament describing a, a transformation that happens within the person who enters into this uh, relationship with God through Jesus. Uh, do we want to say that um, you know, when we become a Christian, that uh, we, are, we are just rotten to the core, but we are covered with something. Or is, does it work within us? Okay. Now, I've just thrown a lot of things out there, but uh, before maybe I get into a little bit of um, how I'm going to describe this, uh, let me just see if you have any thoughts at this point. Maybe some of you have this, these questions, or maybe these are bothersome questions to you, but let me just see if there's any, any feedback. Okay. Let me share a little bit of my view of things and then you'll have a chance to say something later. Let's first, let's just talk about the word atonement. Okay, which if you go back into the Latin, it, it literally means at one. And if we go back to you know, times when the King James was written and uh, we look at what did the word mean back in that time, it always meant things coming together, a reconciliation, literally an at one Shakespeare uses the word, it's always about things being reconciled, things coming together. Okay, and there are many different ways of understanding how that atonement takes place. In the King James, for example, the word atonement is used one time. And it's in Romans 5.11, okay, which in modern translations is not usually, we don't use the word atonement, but let's just read these two verses in the Good News Bible, but that is not all. We rejoice because of what God has done through our Lord Jesus Christ, who has now made us God's friends. So the atonement here in most modern translations has to do with us being reconciled to God, becoming his friends. Um, in another translation, our Lord Jesus lets us to continue to brag about God. After all, it is through Christ that we now have this restored relationship with God. And I will try to make the point that, that is, that's really the heart when we talk about what Christ did, the restored relationship, the friendship uh, is the, the key thing. All right, so one question I think to ask the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, what is sin? Okay. And I think if we want to go to one story to talk about what is sin, I mean the, the first story in the Bible that tells what went wrong in our planet, that is the key story. Um, Adam and Eve were created in the image of their maker. 
and uh, something horrible happened at the tree. And I think uh, several times, we probably talked about this last year, but just in a nutshell, you know, what did Satan do? He made a n- very negative implications about God. First was, uh, you know, it's a pity you can't eat any fruit in this garden. And we just back up a few verses and God said, you can eat all the fruit in this garden, except for that one tree over there. And so the initial implication was um, very subtle, but um, boy, it's a pity God is not a God of freedom. Okay? It, was a, it was a subtle negative implication about God. And then, of course, you know, Eve foolishly engaged in conversation. And then he becomes more bold and said, well, God has lied to you. Okay? And what, what would that do to our relationship with God if we really believed that God is not trustworthy, that God lies to us? Okay, and then finally, he's, he implied by saying, hey, if you eat this fruit, you'll reach this much more elevated state. And the implication there is God didn't make you good enough. He's withheld something that would be for your own good. And the fact that Eve ate the fruit, I don't see poison in the fruit, but Eve and fruit confirmed that she bought the lie, right? That she, she believed the lies of the adversary, that God couldn't be trusted, that he had restricted her freedom, that he hadn't made her good enough. And there was some selfish desire uh, mixed in there as well. So when we want to think about sin, I think this kind of encapsulates what, what goes on with, uh, with sin. So we see a chain of events here. First, there were lies believed about God, lies about God's character. And what happened then is there's broken love and trust. They were at one time in a loving, trusting relationship with God, and now that was broken. Okay? And as evidence, God come, comes for a walk in the garden, they're hiding in the bushes. Right? They're not afraid of serpent. Okay, they're afraid of God. So we have a broken relationship that's happened. And then this is usually what we call sin. Rebellious actions. I mean, when we see murder and these things, we say, well, that's sin. Well, and, you know, that's true, but I would say that's sinful behavior. There's a much deeper layers behind sinful behaviors. It's all predicated on these things happening first. And then we see rebellious actions, selfishness, and so on. And that's what you see immediately with Adam and Eve. Um, Adam is not defending his wife, but uh, he's saying, well, the woman that you made gave me the fruit. I mean, right away we see this kind of uh, survival of the fittest mode kick in. Okay, that's not the way God designed our planet. We see Adam saying, well, the serpent that you made, kind of indirectly blaming God. So right away things fall apart uh, after they eat the fruit because love and trust were broken. And then, of course, the first brothers... You know, one kills the other, and so we see rebellious actions as a result of all of this. So that's, that's how I would want to understand sin. Now, is that how the Bible understands sin? So, again, we usually see breaking the rules as sin. But let's look, look at just a couple of verses here. One in Romans, anything that is not based on faith is sin. Okay, there's one word in the New Testament that can be translated faith or trust. So this is really describing a breakdown in trust. Anything where there's a breakdown in trust, faith in God, that is sin. And the one that's most famous here is 1 John 3, 4. Now, I like the Good News Bible, but I think this is not a good translation of this verse. Whoever sins is guilty of breaking God's law because sin is a breaking of the law. Okay, and there we, we think um, rules, breaking the rules. But uh, when you look at this verse, and many other translations will, will uh, uh, have it this way, that whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness or rebelliousness. Okay, that's, that's much better. Sin is much more than breaking the rules. It's a rebellious 
um, attitude towards God. And we, we just look at the Greek word here. Nomia is law. So the word that is used here is anomia. It's lawlessness. Okay? Deeper than, than, than rule breaking. Okay? There's a rebellious spirit involved in sin. Okay? Another closely related uh, question is what is the law? Okay? And again, we, we think about Ten Commandments and all of the rules and laws that we see in the Bible, but ultimately, what is the law? And so, again, I think the central question here, and so important that we, we grapple with this, is to understand, is the law something arbitrarily imposed by God? Okay? Or is the law natural law? In other words, just how the universe works. So an arbitrary law would be, um, you know, if I told you, you must wear red shoes when you come to neuroscience course. Okay, that would be arbitrary. There's no inherent consequence of that. And if we have an arbitrary rule, then the, the penalty must be imposed. Right? I would have to impose something. And seeing the law as something arbitrarily imposed by God would mean that what's really bad about sin is that God doesn't like it and that he will impose a penalty. I, I think we could make a really good case for seeing the law as like laws of gravity. It's just the way the universe works. And if we see it that way, then the penalty would be natural consequence of being out of harmony with this law. If this is true, then what is really bad about sin would be that sin is inherently self-destructive. Okay, so what would be this natural law? And of course, we don't lack for verses on this. I'll just quote two, but Jesus defined it this way um, as well. Paul would say, the only obligation you have is to love one another. Whoever does this has obeyed the law. If you love others, you will never do them wrong. To love then is to obey the whole law. Love is the fulfillment of the law. And again, the entire law is summed up in a single command, love your neighbor as you love yourself. So if God's universe is designed on the principle of love, which if we look into what is this uh, agape love, it is really an other-centered, outward-going, selfless um, attitude to those around us. It's giving. Uh, love is you know, best exemplified in the life of Jesus, who laid down his life for others. Okay? And that God, his universe, is designed to work on this principle of love. What we see in our world is a, a different type of law. And I think this, this came in with sin and, and, and that is more survival of the fittest where we look out for ourselves and we try to keep others down. Okay, that, that is opposed to, I think, the way God designed our universe to operate. So the question is then, if, um, how does breaking the law of love lead inherently to consequences? And uh, we will talk about that here in, in just a little bit. So again, what is sin? Um, I would say that the sinful actions that we see all around us and we watch the news, uh, these are the symptoms of sin. Okay, but if we want to understand sin, we have to go back to this uh, broken love and trust and distorted images of God, which are at the root of it. Just like I wouldn't want to say that meningitis is headache and fever. Okay, meningitis is a bacterial, a fungal, a viral infection, which leads to symptoms. We can work on the symptoms, okay? We can bring, you know, we can give patients strong narcotics, take care of the headache, we can bring a fever down with different medications, but have we fixed anything? Okay, to really fix the sin problem then, 
involves more than working on the outward manifestations of sin. We, we need to start at the core problem if we're going to see improvement in, uh, in, in the symptoms of sin. It can be very frustrating to work on the symptoms uh, of sin. That's not the starting place. So I would say the problem with viewing sin as primarily breaking the rules is, um, again, if we just look at this kind of chain of events, we consider sin being this way, if we're focused here on the outward manifestations of sin, the rebellious actions, we have the life of the Pharisees as just a stellar example of people who worked so hard on the outward manifestations of sin. That they had so many rules and they were so careful washing their hands in a particular way and creating just exponential rules to work on the symptoms of sin. Okay, but of course God came, they didn't know what he was like and they didn't love and trust Jesus. So, you know, we can work really hard here, but that will just drive you into the ground. So here's what I would uh, just make a claim here, that all God asks is that we come to him and put our trust in him, and he does this by revealing himself to us. That is the purpose of the life and death of Jesus. Now, there's more involved in the death of Jesus, but this is a part of it. He reveals his goodness and his love, and we see, boy, if God is really like that, if God is the kind of person forgiving people on the cross, forgiving the thief, uh, washing the feet of his disciples, hanging out with outcasts of society. If God is really like that and we love and admire that, that's a God we can put our trust in. Okay, so we love that God is that way. We accept his offer of friendship. And then I would say we want to focus on that. You know, uh, by beholding, we become changed. We, we, we work on the beholding part, the relationship part, and God does the good things then in us. So I would see the process primarily as relational, not legal. Now, we have legal metaphors, we have the marriage metaphor, we have lots of different ways of describing this, <clears throat> but, but I would see this as uh, the, a primary way that this works. So we can have different forms of um, legalism. Of course, we said with the Pharisees, people kept coming up to Jesus and asking things like, what good work must I do? Okay, but there we're, we're just working on the symptoms and we just think if we keep the right list, then we'll be in good shape. I heard this definition years ago, which, which I kind of liked. I think a, an unhealthy preoccupation with our legal standing, um, am I covered, and, and seeing that as all that is necessary. You know, you can be very detached from God if you just feel like, well, I'm, I've accepted it, and I'll, I'll be in good shape, I'll get to heaven. And I, so I think just a preoccupation with legal standing could even be seen as a form of legalism. Another one that I think is uh, fairly common is salvation by knowledge. And by that I mean we're saved by knowing the right doctrines, being a member of the right church with the most right doctrines. I guess it's kind of redundant there. But uh, are, are we saved by what we know? Which would kind of imply that at the second coming there's a big test and what's your position on the state of the dead and, and other things. And if you get the questions right, know the right doctrines, then that's what God is after. I, doctrines are very important. So I'm not minimizing the importance of doctrines, but... The doctrines, as I understand them, are very important primarily because they guide us to what God is like. Every doctrine, I think, contributes to our picture of God. Okay, so what we believe about hell, that's an important doctrine because that says important things about God. What we believe about different things. I think we can tie everything together as important as our view of God, but we just want to make sure we don't believe that we're saved by just ascribing to, yes, I believe those doctrines and I'm part of that church. 
And so the descriptions of Jesus coming back the three times this parable is told in different ways. And in, in all three times, the end is Jesus saying, and this can sound rather cold, I think, but there's a deep meaning here, that Jesus will tell them, the people who are on the outs, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I never knew you. Remember, eternal life is to know God. This is a very deep meaning. We were never friends. We are not in a, a trusting, loving relationship. The words to know throughout the Bible. Okay, so this would seem to be key when we have this story repeated so many times about what happens um, at the second coming. Okay, so let's, let's go over this here again. That a believed lie about God's character would, would seem to be at the core. So we have Jesus coming saying, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Okay, that we've had broken love and trust. And all the way through the New Testament, when you hear about faith, again, faith, trust, that, that is key. Abraham is our example. He trusted God. He followed God. So we, we are restored back into trust with God. And then I think there's a natural consequence of that. The rebellious actions and all of this, that God is able to restore his law of love within us. We begin to treat other people more and more as Jesus treated other people. Okay, But it works this way, not the other way. And so we have Jesus saying when he, when he left that... Here it's very simple. This is what I want you to do. Love each other as I have loved you. And I give you a new command. Of course, it's not a new command, but we just have never done it. Love one another. Just as I have loved you, you must love one another. So Jesus came to do all of these good things to restore our picture of God. And ultimately, that should bring us back. It should really change us from the inside, uh, how we treat other people. Okay, yes. Okay, thank you. So what I was saying here is that the, the Pharisee approach seems to be to work on the bad external actions. Uh, to have lots of rules and laws to work really hard not to have a selfish thought. I mean, I think there's some role for effort. So I'm not saying we should just, you know, uh, and, and, you know so we, there, there should be some effort here. Um, but if our primary focus is I am going to grit my teeth and try to love this person that I really don't find very loving, um, working here is just very frustrating. I think if we start here and uh, we, we just, you know, we're continually bathing ourselves and God as Jesus revealed him to be and we admire that, that God is that way, then it becomes much easier for me to try to live that way when I just appreciate that, that God is like that. Okay, so I was saying we should go down this way rather than starting with the, the rules and all of that. And I think it would be hard if, uh, if Jesus, if God never came in human form and we just had these words, all right, love each other. Um, well, no, love each other as I have loved you. As we see how Jesus loved, how Jesus treated people, that's, that is our mission. That's how we want to live as well. Okay, good question. All right. So the last thing I want to talk about um, here is the imagery of the Lamb of God. And I'm just going to point to two passages, one in Revelation and one in Isaiah. How is Jesus the Lamb of God? Okay, so let's uh, skip to Revelation um, first of all. And we have this throne room scene, which a lot of uh, imagery here that we have four living creatures that had six wings. I, I put this in yellow because this is exactly the same um, thing that Isaiah saw. Okay, with, they had six wings and they were saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And day and night they never stopped singing. Okay, so this is 
this is kind of the imagery in Revelation, and it's kind of surprising what happens. So let's just uh, read through. So the four living creatures sing songs of glory and honor and thanks to the one who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever. And when they do so, the 24 elders fall down before the one who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They throw their crowns down in front of the throne and say, Our Lord and God, you are worthy to receive glory, honor, and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were given existence and life. So we have four creatures, 24 elders, praising God, holy, 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 praising God here as creator for making all things. Okay? But uh, here's what is surprising. And if we read this with fresh eyes and we allow ourselves to be uh, surprised by something, I think just intuitively this seems rather unusual. Then I saw a scroll in the right hand of the one who was sitting on the throne. And there was writing on the inside and the outside of the scroll, and it was sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel who shouted with a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals on this scroll and open it? And I, if I just imagine myself being in this setting and God is holding the scroll and the question is asked, who is worthy to break the seals on the scroll? Uh, would there be just a little bit of embarrassment as God holds the scroll? And the question is asked, who is worthy to break the seals on the scroll and open it? Wouldn't you want to speak up and say, well, you know, God is worthy. Uh, let, let him open it. Okay, but no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth, was able to open the scroll and read it. And then I began to weep bitterly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll and read it as God holds the scroll in his hand. Okay, so there's some, there's some tension here. And, uh, but then how it gets resolved is I think it's the meaning here that is very significant. But one of the 24 elders said to me, Stop weeping. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the heir to David's throne, has won the victory. He is worthy to open the scroll and its seven seals. And then I saw a lamb that looked as if it had been slaughtered. But it was now standing between the throne and the four living beings and among the 24 elders. He stepped forward and took the scroll from the right hand of the one sitting on the throne. Okay, now notice what happens. Now they sing a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to break open its seals, for you were killed and by your sacrificial death, you bought for God people from every tribe, language, nation, and race. Again I looked, and I heard angels, thousands and millions of them. They stood around the throne, the four living creatures, and the elders, and sang in a loud voice, The Lamb who was killed is worthy to receive power, wealth, wisdom, and strength, honor, glory, and praise. And I heard every creature in heaven, on earth, in the world below, and in the sea, all living beings in the universe. And they were singing... To him sits on the throne, and to the Lamb be praise and honor, glory and might forever and ever. Okay, so what does all this mean? And um, I, I find the numbers in Revelation primarily significant because of their theological importance rather than their chronological importance. And I think this is a literary device here. We have God on the throne holding a scroll. He's surrounded by four living creatures and 24 elders who are praising him as creator, but no one is worthy to open the scroll. Okay, what happens? Um, I like the translation here that uh, this can be translated as the violently slaughtered lamb. That he comes forward and on the throne and is worthy. And notice, a new song. And we, so we go from four and 24 
And now there is this amplification in praise. 4 and 24 are praising God. And as Jesus steps in, now we have thousands and millions, the whole universe, all praising God because of the violently slaughtered lamb. So I think what the, the imagery here that is trying to be presented here is that we go from 4 to 24 to millions and millions, the entire universe. This doesn't mean, I think, that the Father gets off the throne and walks away and the Son sits down. I think what is being described here is our, our picture of God okay, moves from just the power realm, the creator, as important as that is, but that when we peel through all the layers and we really get to the center, the heart of God, we see, well, what does it mean, the violently slaughtered lamb? That is self-sacrificial love personified, that we see at the very core of God is exactly what Jesus revealed about God on the cross. And so now there is a new song and we see uh, just dramatic things that happen in the universe because of that revelation. Okay, so the Lamb of God here uh, has a very significant meaning in uh, Revelation. Okay, and if I could, uh, just in the last couple minutes, let me just read a little bit into Isaiah because there's really another very important uh, part of this as well. Of course, uh, this is a very popular um, uh, passage here, messianic passage. And I've chosen the Message Bible, but uh, of course we could read this in, in any uh, translation, but this paraphrase I find moving. So just watch my servant blossom, exalted, tall, head and shoulders above the crowd. But he didn't begin that way. At first everyone was appalled. He didn't even look human. A ruined face, disfigured, past recognition. Nations all over the world will be in awe, taken aback, kings shocked into silence when they see him. For what was unheard of, they'll see with their own eyes. What was unthinkable, they'll have right before them. Isn't that incredible? Just you know, de describing this, this, this shock at understanding uh, here this, this revelation of God. And in other translations, they will see and understand something they had never known. Okay? Jesus blows all other understandings of God, just blows them away. We'll understand something we'd never known. So who believes what we've heard and seen? Who would have thought that God's saving power would look like this? The servant grew up before God, a scrawny seedling, a scrubby plant in a parched field. There was nothing attractive about him, nothing to cause us to take a second look. He was looked down on and passed over, a man who suffered, who knew pain firsthand. One look at him and people turned away. We looked down on him, thought he was scum. But the fact is, it was our pains he carried, our disfigurements all the things wrong with us. We thought he brought it on himself, that God was punishing him for his own failures. Now, did the message get it wrong here? We thought he brought it on himself. We thought that God was punishing him. Okay, and really you can read this in any translation, that all the while we thought that his suffering was punishment sent by God. Okay, and that is often how it is viewed. We thought that. Okay, but no, it was our sins. And again, really important. Do we see God imposing the penalty for sin or do we see sin as intrinsically destructive? So Jesus did take on our sin. Okay, He was treated as if he was a sinner even though he wasn't. And I think we see at the cross the inherent malignant destructive nature of sin. God is holding back the winds. He's doing all of these things. I think at the cross we not only see the revelation of who God is but we also see the revelation of how serious sin is. It was our sins that did that to him, that ripped and tore and crushed him, our sins. 
He took the punishment and that made us whole. Through his bruises, we get healed. We're all like sheep who wandered off and gotten lost. We've all done our own thing, gone our own way, and God has piled all our sins, everything we've done wrong, on him. He was beaten, was tortured, but he didn't say a word. Like a lamb taken to be slaughtered and like a sheep being sheared, he took it all in silence. Justice miscarried and he was let off. And did anyone really know what was happening? He died without a thought for his own welfare, beaten bloody for the sins of my people. They buried him with the wicked, threw him in a grave with a rich man, even though he'd never hurt a soul or said one word that wasn't true. Okay, and so just if some of you from PUC may know Jean Sheldon, but I like her uh, description here uh, on this passage. If we see this as divine punishment, we undercut the major thrust of this fourth servant song, an interpretation of this passage in which sin causes the death of the servant, changes the way both substitution and punishment are perceived. If one removes the divine cause, placing it instead on sin, substitution becomes a practical transition instead of a legal transaction. In other words, it's very important, I think, that we understand that the, the weight of the problem, I mean, sin carries the wage, death. Okay, that what we see here is, is not just a revelation of who God is, but how bad sin is. Okay, so I think this is my last slide here and I'll just go over this again. So I think we could say, yes, we've sinned, but what do we mean by that? I would say that we've rebelled against God and our love and trust with God has been broken. Okay, the natural consequence of rebellion against God is death. Sin itself pays the wage and this is God's wrath. Okay, but how we understand God's wrath is, I would say, intrinsic, inherent. Jesus came as God in human form. He restores our love and trust in God, who is now viewed as the all-powerful God, is the violently slaughtered lamb. Jesus also reveals the serious consequences of rebellion against God. Um, some have said of this view that it's a, a soft view on sin, and I, I have to say I just don't get that, because if we make sin out to be the killer, that seems to me to be the hardest view on sin. And so we enter into a loving relationship with Jesus, and we receive eternal life. And yes, I believe in eternal life, living forever and all of that. But there's a more important meaning to eternal life, which is to know God, this relationship with God. If God is not as Jesus revealed him to be, um, that's at the foundation of what is good about living forever, that we will live with a God like that. Okay, so eternal life is something that happens in the here and now as we begin to enter into um, this kind of a relationship with God. And we begin then to follow Jesus' one command which is the law of love. All right, I wish we had time for questions, but I probably should let you go. I think um, in three weeks, we're going to talk about Jesus changing the water to wine, and we'll go through some of the stories in John. All right, so let's pray here just as we conclude. <clears throat> Dear Father, thank you again for everything that you did to bring us into right, right relationship with you once again. Again, we ask that all of these things about um, your law, uh, what happens when we rebel against you, how we understand your character. May we uh, see more clearly the reality of things and then may we be able to share that with others. Amen.